you would take up your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel. We're going to read together uh, chapter 1. I'm going to tag team it here with the boys. And we're just going to um, begin right at the beginning. First chapter. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Benina. Benina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And a rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept. And did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and do not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved. But her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they rose early in the morning and and worshipped before the Lord, and and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked of him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow, but Hannah did not go. 
For she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you wean him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And, and the child was young. Then they soldered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I have asked of him. Therefore, I have also lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshipped the Lord there. If you would join me in a word of prayer, and we'll dive into the book of 1 Samuel this morning, okay? How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. May this people here long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. Oh, that it would be said that our hearts and flesh would cry out for you, the living God. How happy are those who reside in your house, who praise you continually. Happy are those whose strength is in you. Better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. would rather be at the door of the house of my God than to live among the tents of the wicked. For you, Lord, are a sun and a shield. You give grace and glory. You do not withhold good from those who live with integrity. Happy is the person, blessed is the person who trusts in you. Lord, this morning we have your word before us. This is your word. We are your servants. We ask, Lord, that you would speak. For your servants are listening. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. A theme this morning for 1 Samuel. It's up here on the board. God at work through transition. God at work through transition. You know, a few weeks ago we were talking about as we entered into the period of uh, history. We talked about the history of God, right, and the life of, uh, of Joshua. Uh, that's really what we were looking at in that particular week. Uh, God is at work. I want us to see this because I think that... Uh, This applies to everyone in here. Every single one of us, at some point in time or another, are going through, have gone through, will be going through times of transition. What is transition? It's a passage from one place to another. Uh, It's a passage from one state of being to another. Or simply put, in one word... Change. You think of transition, oftentimes you think of change. God at work through transition. We see that in many ways here in the book of 1 Samuel. 
You know, as I was thinking about uh, this idea of transition, it occurred to me there's a phrase in the scripture that happens quite often, not just in 1 Samuel, but it does happen a few times in 1 Samuel. That phrase, how many of you are familiar with the phrase, now it came to pass, right? We, we read that several times in the scripture. In fact, we see it in chapter 1. We just read here this morning, verse 20. It came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son. It came to pass... It came to pass. In other words, Hannah, who was barren, is no longer going to be barren. She's going to have a son. We see it again in chapter 3, verse 2. And it came to pass at that time, while Eli was lying down. This is the point when the young boy Samuel is in with Eli. It's, it's late at night. And, and we see there's going to be a word of the Lord now spoken. Whereas for the longest period of time in the period of the judges, the word of the Lord was what? Rare. And it came to pass. See, see the writer moved by the Holy Spirit is, is filling us in on something is about to change. Something's about to happen contrary to what's been happening. We see it again in, in, in Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old... That he made his sons judges over Israel. Samuel used to be the, the, the leader, the spiritual leader at that time. He's getting old, and so the transition that's going to occur, he's placing and appointing his sons. We read a little bit about his sons. Ah! But someone else is going to be leading a transition. Transitions are going on all the time around us, aren't they? Nationally, we're in the first year of a new leadership in these United States of America. A transition has occurred at the top. Every four years in the United States of America, we have an election. And this past year's election saw a new president. We now have Trump and, instead of Obama. We have a new party. We have a Republican party and instead of a Democrat party. We have, in fact, a new kind of leader we have a, a man who's leading who's more of a, a business kind of leader versus maybe someone who's been in office who's been more familiar with the political scene in Washington. Even here in the state of Indiana, we have transitioned in leadership as our former governor, Mike Pence, went on to serve as Donald Trump's vice presidential candidate, running mate. And so here in our state, we have a transition that's occurred. Mr. Eric Holcomb has transitioned into the role that once was held by Mr. Pence. Transitions occur in the workplace all the time. Managers are hired and fired. CEOs, CFOs are transitioning in and out of the company. Worker bees are being added and they're being dismissed with great regularity, right? Business practices tend to fluctuate with new leadership, a changing of the guard is happening. A, a passage from one boss to the next affects you. And some of you, if time, uh, we had time to go through, I'm sure could tell stories of how a new boss affected you and your colleagues. Transition does, sometimes for the good, sometimes it's a very helpful thing, and sometimes it's not so helpful. But it's a reality in our life. Transition. Transitions occur at home. Children grow up. Amen? They grow up. They do grow up. 
It's a wonderful thing. Older ones leave the home, perhaps. They get jobs. They have a family of their own. Dads change jobs, maybe. Move the family from one place to the next. Death comes And there's a change in the way the family operates now. They're learning to do life a new way. The children are moving from the elementary infant to the elementary to the middle school to the high school to, for some, the college days to full-time employment to marriage to a new car to where am I going to live? Transition. You know, transitions occur spiritually as well. And I praise God for that. Lord willing, there's been a change since the Lord got a hold of your life. You've passed from, the Bible says, darkness to light. From death into life. From being blind to now being able to see. From being a child of wrath to now being a treasured child of God. We sing the song from time to time, what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. Transitions tend to facilitate change. They take us through a passage from one place to another. And how we handle these transitions says a lot about us. You see, our character gets tested. Our faith gets challenged. I'm reminded of the epistle in Peter where the dross is being burned away as we endure through the fire. These things are going on as we navigate through transitions. We live in a transitory culture, don't we? Things are changing around us at lightning fast speeds. How have you, how are you currently handling the transitions that inevitably come into your life? I think it's a a helpful question to at least consider as we look at 1 Samuel. When transitions come in your life, will you persevere and hold the line of truth? Or will you give in and quit? Take advantage of the allurements the world has to offer you? Will you remain under the hand of God as he leads you in his paths of righteousness? Will you decide to go your own stubborn way and forsake his words and ways? If you look at God's word and you study out the book of 1 Samuel, you begin to see transitions dotting the landscape of its pages. In the time that we have this morning, as a means of packaging 31 chapters of material... I'd like to center it around this theme of transition. God at work through transition. Scottish preacher in the 19th century, William Blakey, he has a wonderful commentary on the book of First and Second Samuel. Very helpful. Very, uh, in many ways reminds me of, if any of you have read um, J.C. Ryle's Thoughts on the Gospels. Uh, very similar pastoral understanding of the text and it's, it was very helpful Blakey writes he says God is never at a loss for suitable instruments they are always ready when peculiar work has to be done 
transitions may trip us up. And sometimes they do trip us up, don't they? Change might adversely affect us. Might cause us to stumble. But listen, God is never taken by surprise. He's never caught off balance by change that happens here on earth. As architect of the universe, nothing gets past him. He's the guardian of all things. His truth remains through the transition. His love still holds strong through the transition. His grace is sufficient amidst transition. His kindness toward us doesn't disappear once a transition occurs. His spirit, in fact, guides and leads and shines necessary light for our path. All the more helpful during those times of transition that cultivate uncertainties on our end. God is never at a loss for suitable instruments to carry out his peculiar work. And so having such a a grand view of God will provide you with peace and hope as you work through the transitions that come. You see, when you see God as your anchor that holds, when you see him in that way, there's no transition that you can't make it through. Transitions are going to be hard. They're going to be difficult. Some of them might be just ugly. But we serve a God who is our anchor. When he's your rock, when he's your fortress, when he's your strong tower, you can always go to him for security, for stability. You can transition always abiding under the nurturing wings of your heavenly father. He never leaves you nor forsakes you. Here's something else that's important to take stock of. Transition, we said, implies Change. The God you serve is unchangeable. One song says unshakable. Unmistakably good to those who walk in his ways. So we're going to address some transitions that I believe the book of 1 Samuel gives us. Some helpful things to consider in this book. We're going to, we're going to work through four transitions. Here's here's the first one I'd like to share with you. Government transition. All these are types of transition. I'm just going to put, for simplicity's sake, the one word up there. Government. Government transition. We are, when we open the pages of 1 Samuel, we are transitioning from the period of the judges to the period of what? The kings. From the period of the judges... To the period of the kings. To give you a flavor again of the judges, turn to Judges 21 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's also found in 17 verse 6, pretty much verbatim. Everyone doing what's right in his own eyes. That's the period, that characterizes the period of the judges. As you transition into the kings, It's interesting to me in studying this out to be able to look back as far as Genesis chapter 17 when God is speaking to Abram about his covenant with Abram. I found this interesting. God says in verse 15 of chapter 17 in Genesis, he says, talking about Sarah, his wife, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but but Sarah should be her name. S-A-R-A-I to S-A-R-A-H. 
And he says in verse 16, And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Listen to this next line. Kings of peoples shall be from her. This is back in Genesis 17. So we have already this, this glimpse from God given back in Genesis 17. Now, and not so recent, uh, or excuse me, just, just a few weeks back as we ended the Torah, the study of the, uh, the books of Moses, go, go to Deuteronomy for just a moment because here too there was a word in Deuteronomy that spoke of these kings. And remember, this word regarding kings in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, the kings hadn't come on the scene yet. But when we go to Deuteronomy 17 and we see in verse 14, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it. And by the way, Israel has done that right now, correct? They're, they're in the land, they're dwelling in the land. Deuteronomy is talking about that time when it comes and say, when you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. That's exactly what they say in 1 Samuel, Right? So Deuteronomy is pointing to this time in 1 Samuel. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. And it goes through. It's essentially a rule for the kings. Right? How the kings are to operate. One of the things we'll see here in just a moment. This king was to have a copy. Write a copy of the law himself and have it by him. And abide by the book of the law. Not depart from it to the right or to the left. That was the way the king was supposed to operate. So in reading Genesis and in reading Deuteronomy, I think it's important. Uh, one, one writer really touches on this and says, you know, the crime of the people was not their request for a king. But their expectation that a human king could succeed where they believed the Lord had failed. <laughs> That's really interesting to think through and consider. Samuel is a key transition figure in this book. Thus the name first, Samuel. Samuel. This book is named after Samuel. He is a key transition figure. He's the one God is working through in the midst of Israel's transition from the days of the judges. Remember, we're talking about a government transition. From everybody doing what was right in their own eyes to now we've got a king. We've got someone leading this whole nation here on earth. Samuel is on the front wave of what we'll see in days to come, the prophets, uh, schools of the prophets, in this transition of government structure. It's not intended to leave God out. That's not the intent of the king that set up the kingship, this change of government. It wasn't so that God now could be left out of the picture. In fact, one writer says that both systems, the judges and the kings, ought to have been what he calls theocratic in nature. God-centered, led by God. Even when there was a human king, he writes... He was supposed to be only the representative of the divine king. The fact that the people had not understood this is reflected in the Lord's analysis that the people had rejected him, not Samuel. Remember that? Samuel chapter 8. 
If the Lord was not king, a human king would not meet their expectation. Doesn't matter what human king you put in place. If God wasn't their king, this isn't going to fly. Transitions can be difficult to navigate through. We, We tend to make them more difficult, though, when we attach certain expectations on that person stepping into the leadership position. Are the expectations we have in these times of change, do they take God into the equation? When transition occurs, where's God in the thought process? When change is in the works, are you standing upon the solid foundation of his word? Are you clinging to his truth, his ways, his words, his spirit? Or are you operating in your own strength, content with being wise in your own eyes? Are you going to forsake the storehouse of God's riches for your own feeble supply of resources? The period of the judges lasts some 350, 400 years. The period of the kings, this new government structure that's in process. On the timeline of events from about 1051 B.C. to 586 B.C. 586 ought to ring some bells what happens in 586, right? If you don't know that, we'll get to it. 1051 to 586. Doing the math, I came up with 465 years. So we got another 465 year stretch of government by kings that we're going to read about, okay? The first 120 years of kings are under what's called a united kingdom, right? One human king ruled over the land of Israel. When Solomon's reign ends, the united kingdom becomes what we know as a divided kingdom. Israel and Judah split northern and southern kingdoms. More on that in a few weeks. Here in 1 Samuel, the focus is upon the shift in the governing of the nation. Okay? A shift in the governing of the nation. Once the ki- listen, once the kingship period begins, it's no longer a shift in government per se, but a transition in leadership. The structure remains kings. But the personality and leadership driving the kingship changes and in some instances changes quite drastically as we'll see. So, really, this is a fitting segue to the second transition, which is leadership. You have a government transition, and here in 1 Samuel we have leadership transition that occurs. And while we'll see this more clearly when we get into 1 and 2 Kings, listing of all the kings of Israel and kings of Judah and how they just kind of roll in and out, we'll see that pretty clearly. We catch a glimpse of it here in 1 Samuel. And while Samuel is not a king per se, he's nevertheless a national leader. Would we agree? Can we agree on that? Samuel being a national leader. And and really, instead of you taking my word for it, we can turn to Samuel chapter 3. And I'll show you from the scripture. In Samuel chapter 3, starting in verse 19. So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. 
Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. If you skip over a few chapters to chapter 7, verse 15, it says there that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. So following a period where everyone did what was right in his own eyes, we have a transition in place. God is at work in the life of Samuel. His work in Samuel communicates that the voice of the Lord is speaking once again. Praise God! God's speaking! Yes! Because for about 350 years, he hasn't been speaking to anybody. Nobody's listening. Now he's speaking again. And who's, of all people, who's he speaking to? A little boy. Little Samuel. I find it interesting in that chapter 3 account. You know, he's Samuel. And he gets up and goes to Eli, right? Two or three times. And then there's this like parenthetical verse. I think it's verse 7, chapter 3. It says that Samuel didn't know, didn't recognize. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. This was all brand new. He had no idea. But God is using him. He's going to raise him up to be this transitional figure in this period for the nation. He's speaking through Samuel. Samuel is leading the nation. Listen how he's leading. He's leading the nation through the word of the Lord. The text indicates that Samuel was recognized as the carrier of God's words to the nation of Israel. From from Dan to Beersheba, they recognized Samuel as the one that God was at work in through his word. Samuel was being used as God's servant. Listen, to lead well, we talk about a leadership transition. To lead well is to lead with God's words. Right? It's to lead with God's words. And to lead well is to lead by example, walking in God's ways. Have we not talked a lot about God's words, God's ways? For Samuel chapter 8. Is a pivotal chapter, I believe, in the text. Not only is a government structure at, at, at work here in chapter 8, but we see a leadership, right? A leadership transition is also at work. So we have the government transition happening in chapter 8. He's talking about, you know, hey, uh, the kings. People are asking for a king. That government structure is going to, it's about to change. But we see here in chapter 8, there's also a leadership transition that's occurring. From Samuel to what will be Saul. Samuel under God's leadership. See, I think this is a key. Samuel actually was a a, a national leader, but doesn't Samuel lead under God's leadership? Don't you see that in the text? He's not just going wherever he wants to go, doing whatever he wants to do. Chapters 9 and 10, you see Samuel anointing Saul as the next king. And with Saul as king, 
The nation gains victories over the Ammonites in chapter 11, the Philistines in chapters 13 and 14, and the Amalekites in chapter 15. Saul's leadership starts out somewhat positive. There are some positive things about Saul. Some. In fact, we see that the Lord actually at the beginning is with him. Chapter 10, verse 10, the Spirit of God comes upon him. In chapter 11, verse 6, the Spirit of God comes upon Saul. But when you read chapters 13, 14, and 15, you begin to see marks that tear the kingdom out of his hands. In chapter 13, you remember the account, I'm sure, in chapter 13, where he fails to wait on Samuel to make the sacrifice. Remember, they're, they're getting ready to go into battle against the Philistines, and, and, and Samuel hasn't shown up yet. But see, his lack of trust in God, not in Samuel, I want, I want to put it on God. His lack of trust in God, in God protecting, in God providing for his people, his lack of trust in God is evidenced as he goes on and he offers a sacrifice intended for Samuel. Samuel said he would be there and he would do this. And I believe what we see in chapter 13 in Saul is the fear of man outweighing his fear of the Lord. A rebuke is given at this time by Samuel. Saul is told that his kingdom will not continue. In fact, he's told that God is raising up another leader, a man after his own heart. And who would that man be, church? David. David, right here in chapter 13, he's telling him. He says, God's, God's going to raise up one who will obey my commandments. Then you get to chapter 14, and Saul makes this rash oath. Remember that? Which leads to his son almost getting killed. Praise God for the people who were, who were intelligent enough to see that, that Jonathan was the one who actually brought about deliverance of the people. But Saul makes this oath out of his self, just selfishness. The people of Israel intervene, praise God, as one man, and they, they, they come together and they save Jonathan from being killed. But, but you know, Saul's words get him into trouble, not just in chapter 14. Saul's words get him into trouble a whole lot. In fact, if you track and trace Saul and what he says, what he doesn't say, he has this record in the scriptures of breaking his word. Did you know that? His oaths don't hold. His promises don't really mean a whole lot. His, there's, there's no uh, stickiness. You ever had a, a, a post-it note, a sticky note that you put up on the wall and it, it lost its stickiness? Man, what's, the, what's the point of having a sticky note if it can't stick, right? When we think about that, I think about what Saul, his words. If you say, and by the way, up to this point, have we not seen Evidence time and again that when someone promises, someone vows with their words, they say something, they mean it. And they follow through with it, especially if it's a vow to the Lord. They keep it regardless. And we see time and again Saul making these comments and, and saying these words. I was reminded of the Proverbs in 16. Proverbs 16, 10 through 12. Uh, 10 and 12 says that divination is on the lips of the king. Divination. Now this divination, it's not like some, woo, you know, uh, know, divination. No, on the lips of the king. He's speaking the oracles of God. 
Divination is on the lips of the king. His mouth, listen, his mouth must not transgress in judgment. It goes on and says, it is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness. For a throne is established by righteousness. It is an abomination for kings. Why is it an abomination for kings to commit wickedness? They're the ones who are leading higher expectations. Right? We've talked about this with the priestly office. How they were the intermediaries between God and the people. And higher bar, higher expectation. James chapter 3, those who are going to teach have higher expectations. There's a stricter judgment. And then you get to Samuel 15. It's really the final contributor for Saul's departure as king. He's given an assignment. His assignment is simply this. Take out all of the Amalekites. Leave none left. Saul and his army take King Agag, some of the best sheep and cattle. And then when Saul is confronted by Samuel in chapter 15, Saul initially denies having done anything wrong. He says, the people took the best of the sheep and oxen, Samuel, so that we could sacrifice to the Lord. We took the best so that we could give it to God. Sounds religious, doesn't it? Sounds good. To which Samuel replies, The Lord sent you on a mission. The Lord sent you on a mission. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Ouch. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, by the way, the word of the Lord that was passed down to Samuel... Remember, the word of the Lord was going through Samuel to the nation. And Samuel, while Saul is still king, Samuel is still the one through whom the word of the Lord is flowing. You've rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. Chapter 21 of Proverbs, verse 12. The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. Seem to be fitting for Saul. I want to point you to the text where this leadership transition is seen. Turn to chapter 16. We see it in the span of two verses. You remember the road trip that Samuel makes? God sends him to anoint the next king, the king that he's chosen, this king after his own heart. And they go to the house of Jesse. By the way, remember the father of Jesse is Obed. That's the one we left off with last week. Obed was the son of Boaz, remember? Okay, so we're not too far removed here. Just want to kind of fill the pieces in. In chapter 16, he's going to anoint the next king. And the whole lineup of these sons of Jesse come before Samuel. And, oh, man, surely this is the Lord's anointed. This one looks tall, big, strong, just like Saul before him. 
And in 16 verse 7, we get the insight of the Lord. Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature. I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him, that's David, in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David. There it is. From that day forward. So Samuel arose, went back home to Ramah. Verse 14, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Spirit of the Lord came upon David in verse 13. Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. See it? Transition. Did people see that? Physically? No. But the Bible tells us that transition was going on. Just like that. Spirit of the Lord came upon David. Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. One writer says here that from this point, talking about Samuel 16, from that point on, Saul lost the empowering from God that was essential to be a successful king, and I would add, a successful leader. The empowering of God. How can you lead others effectively when you are not empowered by God through His Spirit? We see that he lost his empowering to be a successful king. And we see an example of this shortly after chapter 17. If you go to chapter 18, this is post-David and Goliath. Everybody's celebrating. Hey, Israel won. The Philistines were defeated. And there's dancing and tambourines. You can just kind of see it. And the women sang as they danced. And said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Oh, yes. Victory. Verse 8. Then Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me they've ascribed only thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Anger, jealousy, hatred, murder. By the way, Jesus addresses murder in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember how he addresses murder in the Sermon on the Mount? He addresses it by pointing to the heart. If you are angry with your brother. You've heard it said, do not murder. You know, the, the, the religious folks today were feeling pretty good because they hadn't murdered anybody. But Jesus then points to the heart of the matter and it's anger. Do you see in the life of Saul where this anger took him? It's a pretty dangerous course. So from 1 Samuel 18 all the way to the end of this book, you see Saul bent on eliminating David, removal of David at all costs. And I love the testimony of Ahimelech, the priest, the faithful priest. He and many other priests were slaughtered at Nob. 
Samuel chapter 22, verse 14. I love this testimony. Think about the boldness. Think about the courage of Ahimelech speaking to the king. This king who's jealous. This king who's angry. This king who wants David dead. This king who doesn't care. Who else gets hurt in the process as long as David gets killed. Or he, he wants him gone. And, and in response to what Saul says, Ahimelech comes back in 22, verse 14. I love these words. And who among you, who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law. He's related to him. Who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house. Who is as faithful as David, Saul? So this is his most loyal servant. This is the one that he wants to kill. You know what? It's a bad leadership decision if you want to take out your most loyal servant. Huh? What do you think? That was the case. He hunts him down. He chases him. He makes a big mess of things in the process by trying to feed the frenzy of his flesh. His pride gets magnified as the book progresses. Anyone who gets in his way is going to get run down. David is in the crosshairs. And we see, fast forward to Samuel 31, Saul's death on Mount Gilboa. It's tragic, isn't it? Tragic death. He falls on his own sword. Tries to have his armor bearer take him out because he doesn't want the uncircumcised folks to kill him. The armor bearer didn't do it, so he falls on his own sword. Takes his own life after being wounded by a Philistine archer. But you know, as I was reading his, about his death, I really believe in many ways his death punctuates his leadership. He did it his way. On his own. And he fell from the Lord's grace that was being poured out in his life. Leaders always fall from grace when they're full of pride. Testimony, exhibit A, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4.37. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I love what Jerry Bridges writes about this verse. He says, don't place yourself in the position of being opposed to God. <laughs> Don't put yourself there. Leadership requires a handle on the word of God. Amen? Requires a handle. I mean, you look at Deuteronomy. You go back to that passage in Deuteronomy about the kings. What's it say there? Specifically in Deuteronomy. It talks about, it says, He shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book. It shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life. Why? Why is it important for the king, the leader of the nation... To read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord as God. That he may be careful to observe all the words that are found in this law. That he may not be prideful, turning aside to the right or to the left. That he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children. That's why. See, leadership changed hands from Samuel to Saul to David. When we talk about leadership transition, we have Samuel to Saul to David. Those are the three in particular we see here in this book of 1 Samuel. We'll speak more of David next week when we get into his kingship. David's not officially king yet in 1 Samuel. 
He's the next in line, isn't he? He's waiting in the wings. But know that the nation of Israel, I want you to know this. The nation of Israel gets a supersized, can I use that term? Supersized upgrade. When leadership transitions from Saul to David. Amen? Big upgrade. Large. The upgrade has a whole lot to do with a king who had a handle on God's word and God himself. I think Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a psalm about God, a love for God and a love for God's word. That was David. Well, let's segue to transition three. Quickly, we'll get through this third one here. But this is also significant. As we think about transition, not only a government transition, not only a leadership transition, but also we see here uh, in the book a household transition. You read 1 Samuel and you see uh, fathers and sons in particular. And we'll see, uh, we'll see this come to play and surface more as the kings. We get into First and Second Kings the fathers and the sons. But here in 1 Samuel, it's also present. It's present. It kind of jumps off the page at you. Um, Elkanah's household. Elkanah's of the line of Levi. In fact, he's of the line of the Kohathites. If you trace his genealogy, Chronicles chapter 6. I love looking at this. This was interesting. Uh, I was telling my son about this this week. This was new information for me. I didn't know this. That out of the line of Elkanah, where Samuel comes from, this whole line uh, produces a couple generations later a man named Heman, not Haman, not the Esther Haman, but Heman. Heman was the great singer in David's choir. He was appointed. In fact, he's labeled as the singer. He, he, he led the singer. He was a musician. They come from a line of family singers. And it got me to thinking about Hannah's song. That was just interesting to think about. I don't want to put it more, attach any more to it than that. But just to know that that line, Elkanah's line, produced musicians in the house of God. Well, Elkanah, we see from the text right at the get-go, he has two wives. That's a red flag, isn't it? Red flag for us today. We live in a culture and a society today. We know, and, and if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand that marriage is one man, one woman, together for life. And we see in the text, we're encountered by this man who has two wives. And one of the wives isn't very nice. In fact, she's downright rude. Says some things she ought not say. She provokes Hannah, who's barren. She can't have children. Can you imagine Elkanah working through this? And by the way, guys, just as a side note, don't ever say what Elkanah says in verse 8. That's all I'm going to say about it. If you don't know what verse 8 is, read Samuel 1, verse 8, and you'll figure that out. Don't, don't go there, man. That's not a good place to go. Um, we see Eli's household brought forth here in Samuel. Uh, Eli had two sons, right? Eli was a priest, his uh, high priest. His sons were, served as priests. Um, we see uh, some specific things about his sons. Uh, we think about his household. We think about... Um, we don't have a whole lot here about how Eli did as a father. We have enough information to go on that Eli wasn't probably the most um, uh, hands-on father with his sons. Uh, I was reading something that someone said that um, was just talking about uh, how he spoke against what they were doing, but he did not act against what they were doing. You know, it's kind of like, uh, and then he left to go. No, no, no. When you understand the holiness of God, and you understand, Eli, that you are in a position 
that is deemed a higher bar than just your average person, so to speak, in the, in the nation of Israel. You are a leader and you dare not let this go. There's some household transition that occurs in this book. Some of it's not very pleasant. In fact, you read the prophecy in chapter 2 of what's going to happen to Eli, and he expounds on that. Specifically, God does with Samuel in chapter 3. He says, I've told him I'm going to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. He didn't restrain them. We see Samuel's household, and we see in Samuel chapter 8, he appoints his sons as judges over Israel, Joel and Abijah. But verse 3 of chapter 8 says, His sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Listen, this is a big deal. Household transition. Guys, we got to get this right. We got to do what we can to get this right before, go, before God. We got to get this one right. There are sons and daughters in our home that the Lord has blessed us with. I believe 1 Samuel gives us a, a wonderful blueprint for here's what happens when you drop the ball on the transition. Now, hear me on this. I'm not saying that 100% of the sins of the sons and or daughters have to do with the fathers and mothers. But what I am saying is we ought to, as parents, be fully engaged in the process as we're running the race. You think of, a lot of times you think of the baton being handed off, the transition that's occurring. What are we doing? How are we doing with that? There is a baton we're carrying, and we've got to make sure it gets into their hands. We've got to make sure they know about it. There's some tragic household transitions here in this book. And then there's David's, or excuse me, there's Saul's household. We see that Saul is a Benjamite. He's an anointed king by Samuel. He's the people's choice. He has three sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, Malkishua. All three of them die alongside Saul at Mount Gilboa in chapter 31. You know, it's interesting to me that one of Saul's sons, Jonathan, who's, who's portrayed in, in, in chapter 19, you know, 18, 19, 20, you can read more about him. And he comes back in the scene a little bit later and goes to track David down. This loyalty, this friendship that's there with Jonathan and David. Jonathan is the son of Saul, the guy who's trying to kill David. Think about Jonathan for just a moment. Just a moment. Side note here on household as we're talking about father and son. Think about being the son in his home. Saul's his dad. David's his friend. Think about how he's torn. And you know what? Jonathan makes the right decision. Jonathan actually speaks to his father and ends up himself almost getting speared to the wall. But Jonathan is, is an example in 1 Samuel. He is an example of what we see God working out all through the pages leading up to where we are now, this covenant loyalty. Jonathan is loyal. He's loyal. He's not going anywhere, even if it costs him his life. He's with David because he understands the Lord's with David. And then there's David's household. 
which we'll get to in weeks ahead. But David, it was a Bethlehemite, tribe of Judah, line of Christ. Look at the last verse of Ruth chapter 4. kind of leads into this line of David. And we see in his family there's going to come uh, much disorder, chaos, treason, murder, dysfunction, all the above. Okay? Last transition, we're done. Hang in there. This is... This is one of the most important ones here. Spiritual transition. And all that happens in the book of 1 Samuel, I, I, I'd be amiss if I left this out. All these transitions that occur, and specifically the spiritual transition that happens in the life of Israel, it begins with prayer in the life of a woman named Hannah. She prays to God for a male child. And with that male child, she has vowed to lend him to the Lord all the days of his life. It's quite a prayer. And you know what? She follows through with exactly what she promises. In fact, she says and so much to her husband, hey, I'm not going to be going to the year to sacrifice this year. I want, listen, she says, Elkanah, I want to make my first trip to the Holy City. I'm going to make my first trip, the trip that I hand him off. And he's the Lord's. I'm not going to go and then, oh, I'll be back next year and he can be yours. No. She wants to make good on her word. And she does that. But this whole transition begins with prayer. God's word returns on the scene. A recognized spiritual leader has been raised up by God. His name is Samuel. This 350, 400-year period of dryness in the book of Judges. Samuel, heard by God, is God's instrument establishing the groundwork through the transition. If you even trace the ark of God, it's an interesting study to trace the ark through 1 Samuel. You know, the ark of God is the presence of God. We talk about the spiritual transformation or transition. We really need to talk about the ark, His presence. Where is it? We see it it starts out in Shiloh and then it goes to Ebenezer. Ebenezer was the place where they were battling the Philistines. And they said, hey, if if we have the ark, all we need is the ark. If we get the ark, the battle's going to be ours. And so they bring it out and they wheel it out. And you see Hophni and Phinehas, they're escorting the ark out. And and we already know something about Hophni and Phinehas. They're ungodly people. They're ungodly priests. Think about that. They're ungodly priests. And they're coming out and, and Israel gets wiped out. And and the ark of God then moves from Ebenezer, the battlefield, to Ashdod. Then moves on to another Philistine city, Gath. And then to Ekron, those three Philistine cities. Then Philistines say, we don't want it anymore because it's destroying us. We're not going to move it on to any more Philistine cities. So they ship it off to the Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh, people, there's something here. We we need some help. Then it goes on to Kirjath-Jerim. And for 20 years, it's stationed in Kirjath-Jerim in the house of Abinadab. For 20 years... The extent of Saul's ministry, pretty much. Saul was king for 40 years. But the ark of God is rarely present as we look at the life of Saul. And it pops back up again in chapter 21 when it's in Nob and the priest is Ahimelech. It's interesting. Transition, I believe, is seen best in this. Chapter 17, if we go just for a moment to, to chapter 17, as we think about the spiritual transition. 
We know it as the account of David and Goliath. But the chapter links David, the shepherd boy, with David, the anointed king to come. How is God going to bring about a lowly shepherd boy to the place of kingship? Now, perhaps if you're asking that question, we need to be reminded of how God raised up this boy, Samuel. We got a boy, David, a young man. We call him a young man. We call him a boy, young boy. But he, he, he raised up this boy, Samuel, gave him a name throughout all the land. His name was recognized in the land, a prophet of God. He was recognized, by the way, uh, for all the people except Saul, it seems. When you read that account, Saul seems absolutely clueless of who Samuel is. The text says that everybody knew who he was. His name was recognized, but Saul, for some reason, doesn't seem to get that memo. A prophet of God, a man who hears from God. Listen, as I read chapter 17, the battle in this valley of Elah, right? It should have been over by the time David's visit to the front lines. Should have already been done. The battle lines had been drawn. A stalemate of sorts had occurred for some 40 days. 40 days, this uncircumcised Philistine, this giant from Gath, he comes down into the valley and he taunts the God of Israel twice a day. And what results? Cowardice. Running away, fear, not even Saul, the king of Israel, the man who stood head and shoulders taller than any of the rest of the people. He turned away thinking this matchup too lopsided for even him. But David comes along on day 41, praise God, and things begin to change. A transition is about to occur. All it takes is for this spiritually minded young man to hear what's happening on the battlefield. He hears what this giant is saying and he starts to wonder, why isn't anyone doing anything about this guy? Does anyone else hear what he's saying? He's calling out our great God. He's profaning his name. I'll fight him. You can picture David. What happens when a young shepherd boy has ears to hear? What happens when a young man has a heart to follow the Lord? What might the Lord do with one surrendered soldier in his army? Notice I didn't say the most equipped soldier or the one with the most fighting experience. A usable, faithful, teachable vessel, humble Willing to go where the Lord is leading. Willing to be the man of God on the front lines. Willing to step out and speak truth when no one else is opening their mouth. Look at these verses, 17, verses 43, 45 through 47. David said, this is right before the battle. By the way, the battle is all of one or two verses. Boom, game over. I love that about this text. But 45. David says to the Philistine before he kills him, he says, you come to me with a sword, with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'll strike you and take your head from you. That's bold. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air, the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know. Here's why. That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. 
Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. David goes from delivery to deliverer in the course of one day. When David is on the run from Saul, you see the spiritual maturity shine through. Twice he has the opportunity to kill Saul, doesn't he? Both occasions he refrains. Saul is the Lord's anointed. And as such, David's not going to harm him. He says in chapter 26, verses 9 and 10, Who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. Is that not prophetic? He went out to battle and he perished. Exactly. Spiritual maturity shows discernment, waits on the Lord, holds on to God when all the pieces seem to be crumbling and falling apart. In fact, that, that very thing happened to David in Samuel chapter 30. He hit what we would call the bottom of the barrel of his life. He was down there. He was down there so low that his own followers, 600 men, were ready to stone him. Remember that? They were ready to get rid of David. And then we find this verse. I love this verse. You can write this verse down. This would be a verse, it'd be a good one to highlight in your Bible. Write down on a post-it note and stick it somewhere where you see it. In the midst of this awful time, bottom of the barrel of his life, Scripture says this in Samuel 30, verse 6. At the end of that verse, it says, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel. David is anointed, is the anointed one waiting in the wings to be used by God. Saul reigned for 40 years and David's about to reign for the next 40 years as king. The nation of Israel is about to enter arguably the greatest spiritual transition in the history of kings. David will bring spiritual leadership, imperfect in many ways, yes, And yet he brings humility. He brings a brokenness. He brings a contrite heart. He brings a repentant spirit over his sin. He fails, but he doesn't stay a failure. He is strengthened in the Lord, his God. We have this government transition, leadership transition, household transition, and spiritual transition. The last one is critical. And it speaks to what's changing on the inside, friends. Remember when God sent Samuel on a mission to anoint David as the next king. He didn't choose the tallest. He didn't choose the biggest. He didn't choose the oldest. He chose the one who had a heart to serve him. God has proven time and time again that he can take the lowly, he can take the least, he can take the smallest, he can take the weakest, the unproven, the inexperienced. When God is at work in you, transition is under his control, his care, his provision. 1 Samuel is a book of transition. It's a book of movement. Passage from one government structure to another. Passage from one royal leader to another. Passage from one father to his son in the household. But the transition, church, that makes all the difference is the one that happens on the inside. Change a heart, renew a mind, and no telling what God can do. An inside change revives a household. A spiritual 
transition changes the way that you lead. A heart change can affect an entire nation, incline hearts toward the Lord, influence others toward this God who is at work in you. God at work through transition. Listen, I leave you with this. Christ transitioned from the heavenlies to become a man. He transitioned from life to death on a cross to make your spiritual transition possible. There may be some of you here today who have not yet acknowledged what Christ has done for you. He laid down his very life that you could experience this spiritual transition, this change on the inside. God wants to do a work in you, just like he did a work in Samuel, just like he did a work in David. He wants to do a work in each one of you. Will we, like David, be ready to run to the battle line, be ready to run to him, Say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. I'm ready. Here I am, Lord. Ready for service. Are you willing? Are you available? Are you going to be teachable? What's your heart look like? I pray that your desire is to have the transition that would change everything. It will change everything, change your entire course of life. This one right here. From the inside. Begins on the inside. Surrendering yourself to the Lord. Operating according to his words and ways now. Not your own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving to us your word. Lord, there's so much here. I I, I know that... uh, there, were, there was a lot here this morning, Lord, and I, I recognize that even as I'm, I'm praying to you. I, uh, Lord, I, I thank you, though, that you, you provided an opportunity for us to be able to look at this theme of transition and see uh, how it works and weaves together in this book of 1 Samuel. It's such a significant, pivotal book in the whole of Scripture. And there are lots of transitional, pivotal people in this book as well. Give us understanding, Lord. I pray that you would grant clarity to us from what's been shared through your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that there are not only government transitions that still go on uh, today, uh, leadership transitions, household transitions. But Lord, I, I, just, I pray, Father, here as we close, that we would see the need and the, the importance of uh, a spiritual transformation Hearts in this place would be changed. We know that you are in the, in the business of changing hearts and renewing minds. And so that's our prayer. We pray, Lord, pray that you would do just that for all of those here. For those who may be listening to this, Lord, I pray that you would change their heart. That they would bow the knee to you and come under your leadership, come under your authority and desire to walk in your ways and speak your words the remainder of their life, holding on to hope in the midst of transition, knowing that you are a solid rock, you are a fortress, that you are an unchangeable, 
unshakable God to whom we can run. Thank you, Father, for your good word and for teaching us this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen.